Welcome to the feature series, How Roger Penske Changed the Indy 500 on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, which celebrates the most successful entrant at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway on the 50th anniversary of his first event in 1969. Presented by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and Bell Racing Helmets, a long-standing partner of Team Penske, this 15-part series spans some of the greatest drivers, managers, mechanics, engineers, and the man himself, Roger Penske, to document the captain's vast influence on America's defining motor race, the Indy 500, and in many instances, the sport as a whole. We'll also be joined by a reporter who covered Penske's Indy debut a half century ago and some of his fiercest rivals, many of whom admit to being fans of the 82-year-old icon. Our guest on this episode of How Roger Penske Changed the Indy 500 is peerless race car designer and race engineer Nigel Bennett, whose immediate impact at Penske Cars produced the 1988 Indy 500 winner driven by Rick Mears, the 1989 winner driven by Emerson Fittipaldi, and more, including the legendary Penske PC23 chassis that carried the beast, the 1,000-horsepower Mercedes Ilmore stock block engine from 1994. Mr. Bennett, we are at this rather impressive milestone for Roger Penske of his 50th anniversary of competing at the Indianapolis 500. Wonderfully as well, when I speak with a Rick Mears or even Mr. Penske, your name comes up. There's such affinity for the cars that you designed while working with Team Penske, with Penske Cars. You have a certain book that you have written as well, which for race engineering geeks like me and racing fans like me, it's just a, a delight. Before we get into some of the Roger and vehicle designs that you've done for Penske, I think folks need to know a little bit about this book because we're not going to be able to cover everything that's in it, but it's a glorious addition folks might consider. Yeah, I, I wrote the book uh, three years ago, really, to, uh, yes, it tells a lot about my years at Penske, but also how and why I got into motor racing at all and uh really my route through uh, working with Firestone Tire Company in international racing with Ferrari, Porsche, Alfa Romeo, and other famous makes, both in Formula One uh, and in sports car racing. And then my time uh, when I finished with Firestone in 1974, uh, working with Hesketh and Team Lotus in Formula One, and what I learned from the great Colin Chapman, about suspension design and uh, chassis design, and how I moved on from there to design Formula One cars with uh, Mo Nunn at Team Ensign, a very small, uh, underfunded team, but which very fortunately uh, got me into IndyCar racing because um, we were running out of money, really, to do Formula One. And uh, we got a contract to build two Indy cars for George Bignotti, who's uh, a famous Indy car uh, team chief. And um, while they weren't particularly successful cars, they did um, excite uh, Mario Andretti, who was driving for uh, Carl Haas and lower cars, and they weren't having a very successful time. And he really got me my job at Lola Cars, where I was in charge of IndyCar design, and we had four quite successful years there and won, won the championship. And, and then on, I moved on to Penske. Um, uh, Roger Penske's um, car design and build facility down in Poole in England 
and I was there for the uh, best part of 10 years and had a very successful time, um, an enjoyable time working for Roger Penton. And the book is really about uh, motor racing in those quite distant times and how different it was uh, in those days and uh, how it worked is very different to how it is now. One of the delights in the book is reading about the many PC designated chassis that you led the design on, Mr. Bennett. And after speaking with Mr. Mears for a good while, uh, I know that coming in with the PC-17 in 1988, if we're just talking about (laughs) immediate impact for a new employer, uh, qualifying told the world that you guys were going to have a rather special month of May. Where did the conversations with Penske begin, though, for you to come in? I believe Alan Jenkins preceded you as the lead designer, but where did the conversations start? And what sort of, of, I don't know if resources would be the word, but clearly you were given the opportunity to create something rather special right out of the gate. Well, I had done four years with Lola Cars, designing their indie cars, and uh, the last uh, couple of years, well, in fact, all all four of those Lola cars, I used a carbon chassis top, which gave immense chassis stiffness, um, particularly in the cockpit area, where it's quite difficult to make a, a chassis torsionally stiff because it's got an open top, obviously. Um, and that gave me an advantage uh, when I moved to Penske over the opposition, which was really March. Uh, March cars, although Lola had a similar sort of thing. But basically what I found, okay, I was I was sort of headhunted because I'd left Lola cars through some uh, small disagreements with Eric Broadley, who we were having problems with the aerodynamics uh, and I wanted more, more money and more time put into the aerodynamic side, which Eric didn't really agree with. So I left I left Lola Cars and was planning to, I uh, started designing a car, um, quite a complicated business, just setting up a small company. Uh, but I was headhunted because Alan Jenkins had had two, not two successful years with Penske, and he'd been fired and they were looking for a chief designer. And um, as luck would have it, I was sort of available. I was very lucky for me and I moved down to, Penske Cars, who had a, a really superb facility. Um, what was available in those days was just building cars for Penske, although we did sell some customer cars as well. And um, we built that up over the 10 years I was there from about 30 people when I arrived to um, about 100 by the time we finished. And um, Although the facilities were were very good, the the money was put in by Roger Penske to run a very good operation of Penske cars, uh, run by Nick Guse, and uh, I was very fortunate that uh, things had fallen into place with me um, to make the moves at the right time. So looking at the environment that you found upon arrival, this PC-17, which led to... 18s and 19s and all manner of successful vehicles, Indy 500 winning vehicles. Can you share some of the thoughts on collaborating 
with say Chevrolet and their engine, which had become dominant, uh, in cart IndyCar at that point in time. And even just working with some of the drivers at team Penske, then at least to try and help shape whatever their culture might've been, uh, performance wise or otherwise. Cause I know you would not just design a car in isolation, just curious about what you saw within the Penske organization that helped facilitate, uh, some of your first designs for them. Well, of course, I'd have to say Rick Mears was uh, a, a complete delight to work for. Uh, he um, had an immense feel for a car, especially on the ovals. And uh, he could describe very clearly what he felt with a car. And as soon as we started testing, I felt there was something special there. Um, and also Danny Sullivan, because I was uh, Danny's race engineer, and he was, he was fantastic on road tracks. And they worked very well together, the two drivers. Um, they would share information. Danny was usually quicker on the road tracks, and and uh, Rick was quicker on the ovals. But the information and the feedback um, was invaluable to me. And although we had a very good aerodynamic program, uh, and when we came out with the PC-17, we probably had better uh, downforce and lift-to-drag ratios than the opposition which, of course, counts for a lot at Indianapolis. That's what, that's what it's all about, is, is uh, downforce and, and low drag. Um, but also the suspension tuning and uh, setting the car up. I was very lucky to work with two very influential drivers who could tell me exactly what they wanted. And as a race engineer myself, I was able to um, be lucky enough to put into effect uh, the changes that they felt they needed uh, to make the car quicker, and generally we were very successful in, the, in those early years. Since 1954, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway has served as the proving grounds for the world's most legendary helmet brand. From Jimmy Bryan to Mario Andretti and Elio Castroneves, Bell Helmets has and continues to protect some of the all-time greats. Follow the journey on social media at Bell Racing HQ or by visiting bellracing.com. Looking at the 17 again, knowing how, A, I've just always regarded the car as beautiful. B, I loved some of the unique touches, such as the wheel covers and such, polished, of course, to perfection. Where does that car, Mr. Bennett, rate among, I don't know if I would say personal favorites, but where does that fall among uh, your IndyCar designs just in terms of, satisfaction or appreciation for what it was able to achieve in a highly competitive environment? Well, of course, the PC-18 was was the follow-on and had uh, numerous improvements, um, weight distribution, again, slightly better aerodynamics. And, uh, and of course, he was selling cars. Roger was selling cars to, uh, to Patrick, and um, Mo Nunn, who I'd worked with at Ensign and had really got me into this Indy car thing, was our failure to um, come up with a budget to do Formula One properly and selling the two cars to George Pignotti. He was running um, Pat Patrick's team and driving and uh, race engineering Emerson Fittipaldi. And I remember uh, a meeting with... Uh, with Mo um, before the season started, and he was saying, "We're well, goddamn going to beat Penske with this car." 
I said, no, you won't, no, you won't. But they did. They did an excellent job, and uh, Mo is a very good chassis engineer, and uh, they, did a, they did a better job than we did in that particular year. Looking at some of the follow-on vehicles as well that you designed, we have Rick winning his fourth and final Indy 500 in 1991, another vehicle that I just thought the PC-20 was glorious as well. Clearly, I'm a bit of a fan. I could try and hide that, but no need. Uh, Also, from a just a, a lineage standpoint, I think many folks would look to the PC-23 in the achievement with the proverbial beast mounted uh, within the engine bay for the Indy 500 as another classic. Can you share some thoughts, Mr. Bennett, on just this rich vein, this very rich era of 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, on up uh, these vehicles that you created for Roger, many of which winning the Indy 500 it seems like, and I'm assuming, but hopefully you can share that Roger, either directly or through his uh, variety of managers, Nick Guzay as well, obviously, seemed to just back quality and inventiveness, maybe in a way that some of the high-volume manufacturers might not have embraced. Uh, Roger Penske, from my point of view, was ideal to work for. He never ever questioned what I was designing or uh, whether I was doing something right or wrong. I mean, he might say at the beginning of the year, is this car going to win? And I said, well, I don't know, but I hope so. We're doing our best. And uh, Teddy Mayer uh, was was around because he was uh, working for Roger in a, on a, in a financial sense, and he would spend quite a lot of Penske, that Penske cars, quite a lot of time there. And he and I used to talk, and he would he he would question some of the things I was doing, and uh, but uh, we never had I never had really very little interference with with what I was designing, and uh, of course having success in the early years was the Penske PC seventeen and the eighteen, and later the twenty one, twenty two, and twenty three. Um, I suppose he, he had trust in what I was doing. And it was only in the later years with the 25, uh, well, of course, an Indy was the uh, the year after the, with the PC-24, where we failed to qualify. That started to raise a little doubt in uh, what was going on, I think. And in the later years, we had a, a tire problem uh, on the road tracks with um, the Goodyear tires that we were contracted to, and they just were not competitive with Firestone yes. uh, tires. Um, and our performance in those years fell off. We could still win on the ovals, but there was an ingredient that uh, Firestone were not allowed to use in the United States. Sorry, Goodyear were not allowed to use in the United States because it was considered to be uh, carcinogenic, which Firestone could use because their tires were made in Japan. Uh, which really hindered uh, the uh, road track racing tires in those later years uh, in that they couldn't, if they made them soft enough to work, they just didn't last and they'd be quick for two or three laps and then their performance would fall off dramatically. So these sort of things make a big difference. Um, You know, if you haven't got a tire that will last 
keep his performance through his life, you're, you're, you're really hindered. But no, we had a poor year. Of course, we had the, the year of the big beast with the PC-23 at Indianapolis, which is an interesting story of engine design and development in itself and how the, the engine was developed and how, it, how the testing went on in complete secret uh, for months and snow-covered tracks in Nazareth and uh, tests at Ontario and uh, speedways. And nobody realized what what was going on. And this, this engine totally dominated the uh, race at Indianapolis. And it probably hid some some slight imperfections in the design of the actual car because the following year with the PC-24, we were not competitive in Indianapolis. Mm. And uh, while I now think that was due to a particular setup problem, which uh, is highlighted in the book, and I think explains it to my satisfaction why we weren't competitive. Um, it sort of hides the fact that perhaps the PC-23, the previous year with the big engine, um, overshadowed the design philosophy there on the speedway. However, I personally don't think that was the case, but it's an interesting story, and uh, People always get hold of one idea, whereas the engineers and designers probably have another. Absolutely. Well, that that's actually an area that I was hoping to expand upon before we close, and that is just from an ambition and commitment standpoint, looking at the PC-23, which was just simply uh, magnificent in terms of results throughout the year, not just the Indianapolis 500, but so many victories. From a design standpoint, though, you were tasked with mounting a standard 2.65 liter turbocharged V8 for the entire calendar minus the 500. Also had to design that car to accept a larger engine, the, the Mercedes-badged engine for the Indy 500 in terms of weight, dimensions, uh, center of gravity, etc. Designing one chassis to perform at its peak while accepting two radically different engines uh, i'm sure that's something where uh, from a balance standpoint just everything possible seemed like a very tall order being asked and yet i can't think of any other team owner who would get behind and support such a thing financially knowing that one or the other if we're talking engine packages and configurations could be more or less successful, and yet uh, championship was won, Indy 500 was won as well. Share some thoughts, if you could, just about Penske green lighting this, one of the most massively ambitious uh, projects for any year. Yeah, I think uh, it came about because in previous years, in qualifying and practice qualifying the early laps of the races at Indianapolis, the Oldsmobile uh, push rod engine which had considerably more power than the 2.65 litre racing engines that we were using it was a bigger capacity uh, yes it used lower boost but it had tremendous torque and uh, it would invariably start qualify on pole uh, or near the pole um, but it didn't last it wouldn't last the race um, or very very rarely lasted the race or had to run the race at much reduced boost outputs, power outputs. And I think um, 
I had I had a few conversations with Ilmore, who were designing the, the Chevrolet, uh, the Ilmore Chevrolet engines, and suggested perhaps that they ought to they ought to get hold of a, an Oldsmobile and engineer it properly so that it would last the race. And I think this put possibly put an idea into various heads. And in, in any ways, Roger and Ilmore came up with this plan for this uh, this big beast engine. Uh, running under the same uh, uh, rules that the Buick, yeah. Sorry, was I saying old to me? And, uh, yeah, there were some, uh, there was no problem in fitting it to the chassis um, because Ilmore had designed it with the same engine mounting points and the same gearbox mounting points. We had to do a, a different gearbox because the ratio, because it was a much lower rev- revving engine, and so... Uh, uh, the gearing had to be different, uh, which involves some changes to the gearbox. Uh, the underwing, crucially, had to be different to uh, clear some oil pumps. Uh, and the central gravity was higher because it was a taller engine with a big plenum. Uh, and, yes, I think this did hurt the handling. And, of course, it had enormous power, uh, something over a thousand horsepower, probably two hundred horsepower more than the normal Chevrolet racing engine, um, and it dominated the race. Um, despite the none of the drivers said their car handled like a dream at that race, but it was adequate to win, if you like, and um, its power advantage overcome any handling deficiencies that might have come from. It's higher center of gravity and it's slightly deficient uh, underwing aerodynamics. So um, perhaps that masked us uh, to some extent in any deficiencies in the actual car at the speedway, which might have hindered us at the, the next year's race with the PC24. And that was the popular feeling. Um, among a lot of people, though, as I say in the book, I think there were other reasons for our failing at uh, at subsequent races in Indianapolis. Let's finish on this, Mr. Bennett, and finish with the question that I've started with, with so many others. Knowing that we are honoring and celebrating Roger and the team on its 50th anniversary at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, knowing that you were an integral part for a decade of that span, knowing that multiple Indy 500 victories were earned with vehicles that you designed, what comes to mind when you think about the impact Roger and his team has had on the 500 for nearly half of that race's existence? Well, I think his Roger's success in motor racing, in IndyCar racing, and in the Indianapolis 500 just shows what an incredible leader he is um, of his racing teams, of the other companies that he's involved with. And he is uh, the most fantastic leader and uh, organizer of teams, of men, of groups. And I just feel so lucky to have worked with him for 10 years. And um, as I say in the book, every move that I made seemed to be a very lucky one and everything fell into place for me. And although, you know, I was lucky to design some some good cars, um, 
Working with Roger was a real privilege, and he and his team undoubtedly made the most of what I offered. And that was how Roger Penske changed the Indy 500. You can catch this series in more than 500 episodes at the brand new Marshall Pruitt Podcast.com site. All brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and Bell Racing Helmets.